As we begin this morning, I want you to picture in your mind's eye, if you would, a mother and a father. And they have with them their little, I don't know, four or five-year-old boy, four or five-year-old son. Let's call him Joey. Now, this mom and dad, they're a modern, progressive couple, but they love their son and they want to show in that love, so they're over in Disney World. They're over in Orlando. They took him over there and they've seen some of the attractions. They've gone to some of the places. Now it's a Saturday evening. And they're walking down on International Drive amidst all of the shops and all of the stores and all of the attractions that are there. They're walking with Joey down International Drive. It's a beautiful evening, a lot of people walking around, and there are a lot of cars on the road driving up and down, whizzing past them on either direction. So his mom and dad are walking with him, and all of a sudden, Joey breaks away and begins to run out into the street, into this traffic. And what does his mother, what does his father do? They do absolutely nothing. They just watch to see what happens to little Joey. What? Why on earth would they do that? I already told you. Because they love him. And they don't want to offend him by warning him about maybe being hit by a car and the consequences that would then result about all the pain and the suffering that he might have, possibly even death. But because they love him, they don't want to offend him by telling him to get out of the street. Now, of course, that's absurd. It's ridiculous. If you love your child, you teach your child, you train your child. You warn your child of the dangers. Loving parents don't let their children play with matches. They don't let their children put their hands on hot stoves or walk with bare feet on the broken glass on the floor. They warn their children. They teach their children. They train their children about the consequences of such things, of such actions. It's so simple. It's so clear. It's so plain. It's what we do. And yet, countless churches say that they don't want to upset their people. They don't want to offend their people in their church because they love them so much that they don't want to offend them by telling them about sin or the consequences of sin or hell and the wrath of God. They want them to be, after all, happy. And so we don't want to tell them anything that might offend them or upset them. That is every bit as much inconsistent 
and ridiculous as parents who would just stand there and watch their child run into the street. It is wrong. It is unbiblical. It is inconsistent even with our Lord Jesus and His teaching. And certainly, He is the epitome of love. But as we have been seeing from the Scriptures in our study entitled The Beauty of Wrath under the major heading, The Reality of Wrath, and as we've been looking at most recently the Christian concept, we've seen the clear, the plain, the unmistakable teaching of our Lord, which is that there are consequences for sin. Consequences for not following Him and believing Him. And He speaks bluntly, plainly, and clearly about those consequences in such places as we have seen as the Sermon on the Mount. He tells people that they are to repent and be saved and what He is speaking of and what any church is speaking of when it tells men that they must be saved. It is to be saved from the wrath of God. That's what salvation is. Being saved from the eternal wrath of God. And this is what Jesus taught. He warned men of the fires of hell. And that those who are not saved will be cast into that fire. That He will say to them, Depart from Me! I never knew you. Sober words from our Lord Jesus. But this is the clear teaching of our Lord found in many passages in the New Testament as we have seen. So the best thing that I can do for someone that I love is to warn them that they are sinners in the hands of an angry God and in danger of eternal wrath. Not to be worried about whether or not I offend them. In some cases with one of our brothers, he's been speaking to one recently and they almost have refused to even talk to him anymore because he had to be so blunt as to tell them the truth. I would rather have people mad at me for telling them the truth than to hear God tell them to go into eternal fire for eternity. That is the mentality that we must have even as our Lord had warning men. Today, we pick up to see not what our Lord Jesus taught, but beyond that, now we'll be coming into the epistles. And we're going to begin this morning to see the clear teaching of the apostles to the church. Particularly today, we're going to be looking at several passages from the Apostle Paul. Now, I would mention, of course, that there are a lot of texts that we could turn to, many passages, but we're only going to take a select few. So please turn with me again in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 as we pick up with the clear teaching of the apostles to the church regarding the wrath of God. As you turn to Romans, I will remind you, as most of you know, that the epistle to the Romans is considered by many to be the best presentation of the Christian gospel 
in the Scriptures. The most concise understanding of who we are as sinners, who Christ is as the Son of God, and what salvation is through Him, presented all in this book called the book of Romans. And here we are, right in the very beginning of this book, the very first chapter, and as we read in the first, in verses 14 through 17, we pick up now in verse 18, where Paul says, For the wrath of God... Didn't take him long, did it? The very terminology, the very language that goes with this entire series... The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. You don't have to attend Grace Baptist Church very long to hear me turn to Romans chapter 1 or Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. They're high on my list of passages that need to be brought before people. And we often turn to this text. But I'm going to do something I doubt that I've done in a long, long time. And that's to actually park here for a little while and open it up. We're going to spend the day looking at predominantly verse 18. Just what he says in verse 18. As we see him speak of the wrath of God being revealed. Now the word wrath is the Greek word orge. And it is translated here wrath. And what it means is his anger. We speak about it a lot. His anger, his indignation. It is a clear display of his displeasure. And we're going to see what it is a clear display of His displeasure upon in a moment. But it is this word, orge, speaking of His anger. And Paul here says that it is revealed. Revealed upon men. You know what the word revealed is? It's a terrible word. A frightening word. Apocalypto. You know what apocalypto is. It's the word apocalypse from the book of Revelation. Some translation even calls it the apocalypse. And people have gotten in their minds that, oh my goodness, it's the apocalypse. The apocalypse means the end of the world. The end of all things. The apocalypse means horror and tragedy. Apocalypse means revealed. Apocalypse means revelation. So in the book of Revelation, if you were to look there, in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, it is the revelation, the apocalypto. And that is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here, the Apostle Paul is speaking of the apocalypto, the revelation of the wrath of God. It is being revealed. It is being seen. It is being shown to people. It is a revelation. 
a revealing. Certainly, the primary reference to what Paul is speaking of is what we sometimes or usually call natural revelation. Natural revelation. So what he is speaking of in this text is creation. We see God revealed all around us in creation. In the earth. In the moon. In the stars. I love to walk out and see the full moon. I'm not a moon worshiper like Abraham's father. I am not a moon worshiper like Islam. I love to see the full moon because it shows me the beauty, the power, and the wisdom of God who put that moon there. And when it shines bright, I hope everyone looks at it and says, Wow! There has to have been a Creator. Because that is exactly what it does. It is the exact right distance from the earth that it keeps our tides flowing so that our waterways are cleansed regularly from the debris and from the soot or soil or waste that would be contained in them. The moon is the exact distance away from the earth to give us this great effect and the other things that it does. It's not too close. It's not too far. It's just right because God put it there. Same with the sun. Any closer we'd be too hot. Any further we'd be too cold. His creation shows His wisdom, His power. And even when you look out and see some of the beautiful flowers, shows His beauty. The majesty of the mountains and the trees and the, and the plants. Even when you drive by sometimes in I-75 or something and you see these beautiful flowers growing in the media and they still look good because our God knows how to create beauty. This is what creation shows. This is what creation reveals. And in that... In seeing His power and His wisdom and His beauty, it also reveals His wrath. His wrath is seen in our creation. His wrath is seen in the thunder and in the storms and in the might of His wind as it blows. The things that He brings. Now this is obviously what Paul has in mind as we read In verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them because God made it evident to them. He's speaking of the natural creation which is evident to man. Even if you didn't have a Bible, you should know there's a God. And this is the the teaching of Scripture that no man will be without excuse. No one is going to stand before the throne of God on Judgment Day and say, well, I didn't know. If you think some little aborigine isn't going to be able to be judged by God because he never heard the Gospel, you are wrong. Men are without excuse because His beauty, His wisdom, His power are clearly seen in creation. And so is His wrath. That men should see it and flee from it and flee to Him. 
Look again also at verse 20 as he goes on and he says, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. See, it wasn't just me. I'm not making it up. That's what's here in the text. His nature, His attributes are clearly seen in His creation. And they are understood. Understood. The only reason that men refuse to understand them is because of what He says in verse 18. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But they are there for them to see. And so the point that He is making back in verse 18, that through creation, the wrath of God is revealed. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. From heaven. The storms that He sends, the lightning that He controls, in the wind and the storms that He sends upon men. You know how insensitive that is? You know how horrible that is? You remember what happened back when, what was it, Hurricane Katrina hit Louisiana? And I think some preacher said that it is a display of the wrath of God and that preacher was lambasted in the press. You can't say stuff like that. You can't say that storms that kill people are the wrath of God. It's insensitive. It's not politically correct. And yet, it is biblically accurate. We read in such places as Psalm 148 and verse 8, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds, fulfilling His Word. Fulfilling His Word. There's a lot of texts I could turn to, but I like this one because I just read it. Look at Job, if you would. Job chapter 38. Just before Psalms, Job chapter 38. And here we have God Himself speaking out of a whirlwind as it is. Answering Job's comforters. The last comforter of Job, Elihu, said that one perfect in wisdom is before you. (laughs) And it's right after he speaks that God speaks. Oh, really? Who do you think you are? And that's what we have today, just the arrogance of men. The arrogance of scientists, so-called scientists. The arrogance of people who say such things as, there is no God. That this stuff is just Mother Nature. I got news for them. There is no Mother Nature. There is God. God is sovereign. And God is in control of all things. We like to say that even every snowflake that falls is perfectly created by Him and falls exactly where He wants it to. Where He tells it to. He is in control. And this is what He says. Here in Job 38, look down to verse 25. Who has cleft the channel for the flood? 
or a way for the thunderbolt or lightning, which is that that is sometimes translated, or a way for the lightning to bring rain on a land without people, on a desert without a man in it, to satisfy the waste in the desolate land and to make the seeds of the grass sprout. Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb has come the ice and the frost of heaven? Who has given it birth? Water becomes hard like stone and the surface, the deep, is imprisoned. Can you bind the chains of Palladius or loose the cords of Orion? And he just goes on to speak of how he is the one who is in control of all these things. Turn even to Matthew. Matthew's Gospel and chapter 5. Here our Lord Jesus Himself says, down towards the end of the chapter, verse 47. Let's back up. Verse 45, In order that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God is in control upon where even the rain falls. Let's go back to Romans chapter 1 again. Romans chapter 1. So what Paul is here saying is that in all of these things, men should look at them and see the wrath of God the power of God, the omnipotence, as we say, of God. I think I mentioned even just last week in some of the writing that uh, men used to look at these things and see and understand that it is the finger of God. And today they just shuck it off and just call it Mother Nature or just a coincidence. The fact of the matter is that these things are there so that men may see the power and the glory and the majesty and even the wrath of God as it is revealed from heaven. Now, I would also like to include here before we move on that as he says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven does speak predominantly to what we call natural creation. But I could not help as I was going through this to think to myself, and I wanted to just mention to you, that it could also mean indeed what we call this or special revelation. This is special revelation. And special revelation is what we could call the 66 books of the Bible. That is God's special revelation. But where does that come from? Special revelation is likewise from heaven. We believe indeed that God moved men to speak exactly what He wanted them to say. We believe in plenary inspiration that every word is the very word of God. We believe that the Scriptures are God-breathed. Theopanoustos. God-breathed. Every word comes from God. And therefore, even 
special revelation is from God. And special revelation is supernaturally attended by God. Supernaturally kept by God. Supernaturally preserved by God. That's why you have an accurate Bible on your lap right now. Because God did not just give the words to the prophets, but they wrote the words. And the words were kept by godly men and copied by godly men. God inspired those men to write the Gospels. Inspired Paul to write the Scriptures. They were written. They were copied. They were kept supernaturally so that you have an accurate account of God's special revelation. And I say that to say this, that in this special revelation, the wrath of God is certainly clearly revealed. We saw it in the Old Testament when we studied the conviction, the chronicle of conviction in the Old Testament. We saw it in Jesus, in His clear teaching, and here the Apostle Paul in his first epistle, at least in order in this New Testament. And the first chapter speaks of the wrath of God. Here in the special revelation, as in the natural revelation, we have the wrath of God revealed, both in creation and in the Bible. So now let's look a little further at what he says in this text. As he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. What is the wrath of God revealed against? Who will incur the wrath of God? Who will experience the wrath of God? And it is said in the text that it is against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What is that? What's the difference? Well, ungodliness speaks of or has to do with the first four commandments in the Ten Commandments or the moral law. As you know, if you know your Scriptures, the first four commandments have to do with men and their interaction before God. The following six have to do with men and their interaction with men. And so, ungodliness speaks of men and their actions before God. They are not to have any other God. They are not to have idols. They are not to take His name in vain. They are to keep His Sabbath. His holy day. These are the things that we do pertaining to God. Jesus summarized them in. Love God. With all of your heart, soul, and mind. Love God. That's the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments. And to not do so is ungodliness. Ungodliness. Crimes against God. Sin against God. Offense against God. And if you were to stop and think in your mind for just a moment, how much of this takes place constantly? Constantly. Men in our day have set up all kinds of idols before God. All kinds of pagan idols 
and all kinds of gold idols, all kinds of idols they place before God. The world is filled with men who do not believe in God and proudly try to say that they do not believe in God. I know they do. Romans tells us that further on here. They know there's a God. But they try to say proudly that there is no God and they do not believe in a God. It is almost a badge of honor with people in our day to deny God. That is ungodliness. Can you think of men who continually, tenaciously mock God, deny God, curse God? What do they expect to get from God? I'll tell you what they will get from God. His wrath. His wrath is revealed against ungodliness. His wrath will be revealed against these God-haters. But yet, uh, think in your heart for a moment of how many so-called professing Christians there are who profane His Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath. See, it's not just worldly people who are ungodly. Think of the multitudes of churches that have thousands of members, supposedly, and hundreds attend. One of our family members was telling us recently that they attend a church in another state, a Southern Baptist church. And this Southern Baptist church has about 3,000 members, 3,000 members, and about 300 people show up for worship on a Sunday. 3,000 members and 300 show up to worship God. What is more important in the life of a Christian than the worship of their God? It is a display of ungodliness for Christians to not worship the one that they suggest and say save them from their sins. That's ungodliness. Christians are to keep the Lord's day holy. Now, we're not legalists. We don't set up rules and regulations. But this is still the teaching of the Word of God. That this is the Lord's day. And this is why we worship on the Lord's day. The first day. The day that Christ rose from the dead. Changed from the seventh to the first because of His resurrection. But not changed in terms of keeping it holy towards a holy God. We worship Him gladly. We look forward to it. Worshiping Him on His day, the Lord's day. Not to do so is ungodliness. But then he speaks of unrighteousness. He speaks that it is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. And unrighteousness has to do with the next six 
commandments in the Ten Commandments. Those against men. All the murder and the adultery and the stealing and the lying and the coveting. And imagine honoring parents. That's the first one of the unrighteous group. Not honoring parents. Or you should honor your mother and your father. We live in a day when respect to adults is almost all but gone. I haven't said this in a long, long time. Teach your children respect. I am not steeped in pride. You don't see me putting reverend in front of my name anywhere except when I have to. It isn't in the phone book. It isn't on my car. I don't say Reverend Hildebrand or anything like that. But I do think it is disrespect when children would come up to me and call me Michael. It's just disrespectful. And yet it is the norm. Even in churches. Where we think, well, we just got to be familiar with the kids and we just got to make sure they know that we love them. Kids, I love you. But I'm Pastor Hildebrand. That's just respect. Honor your father and your mother. Where did that go? Where has that gone? This is unrighteousness. And how many people lie without even giving it a thought in our day? On tax returns, on things like that. They just lie and lie and lie and don't even think about it. That's unrighteousness. And what about theft, stealing? Thou shalt not steal. What do you think is going on in that city in Missouri right now? Ferguson, Missouri. All of these people rioting and looting. I've heard some people say quite bluntly that all they're doing is taking advantage of the situation so they can steal. Steal what they want. Take what they want. Get what they want. It's unrighteousness. No matter what the circumstances, no matter what the situa situation that precipitated it, it is unrighteousness. Good grief. How little people think of marriage vows in our day. The cheapness of divorce and the cheapness of marriage and adultery and life has become very cheap. People kill for seemingly no reason. Just murder. Kids killing kids. And dare I mention even again, mothers killing children in the womb. Life has become cheap and it is all unrighteousness. And then, of course, there's that Tenth Commandment that nobody ever thinks of. Coveting? That ain't so bad. A little coveting now and then. 
Well, coveting ain't so bad, and yet coveting can be seen to be the underlying or foundational cause of many of the other commandments. I want those wheels for my car, so I will steal those wheels for my car from the wheel store during looting. That's what I saw guys carrying out of some of those things on the news. Big wheels for their car. I want those wheels. I'll steal those wheels. I want that guy's wife. I will commit adultery with that guy's wife. Coveting. I want to get away with this crime, so I will lie about it. Coveting, coveting, coveting. One of the main sins, foundational to so many other sins, all of this is unrighteousness. Stick with me now. I'm doing this for a reason. There's a purpose to why I'm laying this all out. Because I want you to realize that all of us, all of us, are guilty of ungodliness and unrighteousness. We are all sinners. And the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. So any of these, all of these, render you, render me sinners before God, worthy of His wrath, as David said in Psalm 51. And so we turn the page or two to Romans chapter 3 and we read as he says, beginning in verse 10, as it is written, there is none Righteous, not even one. So how many of you are righteous? Which one of you is the righteous one? When the Scripture says we are all sinners and we are all unrighteous. Not one of us is godly. Not one of us is righteous. Not one of us is worthy. To be saved by God. There is none that is righteous. Not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Why do churches have seeker services? Because they don't know the Bible. There is none who seeks after God. There is not a righteous person out there who's groping around on his own going, oh, I think I'll be saved today. I want to be saved today. Where can I find a church that has a seeker service for me to go to and be saved today? No one's doing that! Left to themselves. There is none. None. They have all together become useless. None who does good. There is how many? Not even one. Could Paul be any clearer? Could he be any clearer than this? Let me tell you something. This is all of us. This is not a message for the guy or the girl sitting next to you. This is you. This is you. This is speaking to you. All of us 
are sinners. All of us are involved with this ungodliness and unrighteousness. And all of us deserve to incur the wrath of God. So, the one who understands this, the one who hears this, not just outwardly, not just the outward call, but the inward call. The one who hears this and the one who understands what Paul has written and the one who understands it in their heart is one who will be before God and know that they are a sinner and know that there is nothing that they can do worthy of salvation. There is nothing that they can do to save themselves. They can never be good enough. So they will cry out to God, Oh God! I do not want to incur Your wrath! I do not want to go to hell! Oh God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner deserving of Your wrath. I see it in the storms. I see it everywhere around. I see it in Your Word. I know that I am a sinner. And oh God, have mercy on me. What can be done for one like that? What can be done for one who knows that and understands that? Who knows that he's a lost sinner and cannot save himself and cries out to mercy? And the answer comes back in chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And it comes back. The mercy of God. The mercy of God. For we read in verse 6, For while we were still helpless, while we were still sinners, while we were dead and lost and unrighteous and ungodly, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. Sinners who rebel against Him. Sinners who curse Him. Sinners who deny Him. He died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, someone that does good to his fellow man. Though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His mercy. His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Unworthy sinners. Unrighteous, ungodly, unworthy sinners, Christ gave His life. Christ went to the cross and gave His life. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from what? 
saved from the wrath of God through Him. That's what salvation is. You are ungodly. You are unrighteous. You are unworthy. You are a sinner. But God's mercy is greater than your sin. He sent His Son Jesus who gave His life on the cross and His blood, His sacrificial blood sacrifice propitiates, turns away the wrath of God from you. He paid the wrath of God that I deserved. And now, in verse 10, I am reconciled to Him. Reconciled to God. I was once lost, but now I'm found. Once was blind, but now I see. I was against God, alienated from God, an enemy of God, but He died for my sins. And I am brought back to God. Reconciled to God. And I'm in love with God. He's my Abba Father. And I am His Son. What a marvelous work Jesus has done for His people. Saving us from the wrath of God. I'm undeserved, ungodly, unrighteous, undeserved sinner. But He gave His life. And so the Christian no longer fears the wrath of God. The Christian is delivered from the wrath of God. And so I thank God that I found out that I was a sinner. I thank God that His Word showed me that I was lost and in danger of judgment. I thank God that I've sat under men who preach the truth about the wrath of God and the judgment of God and the sin in my own heart so that I know more fully and more really what God has done for me. And it means more to me Every day. This is the Gospel, people. That Jesus saves you. That you are saved from the wrath of God through His finished work. And preachers and churches who leave this out, who leave out the wrath of God, are not preaching the New Testament Gospel. They are, as Paul says in verse 18 of chapter 1, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Even preachers are doing that by not bringing the true Gospel of salvation from the wrath of They are doing no more good to their people than that silly couple in my opening illustration who would just let their kids go out and run in traffic. 
They think they're doing them good by not preaching on the wrath of God, warning men against sin and against hell and the judgment of God. They're not doing them good. They don't care about them. If you love someone, you warn them. You teach them. You train them. You beseech them to be saved from the wrath to come. I am telling you these things from the Scriptures because I don't want to see you condemned by God. I don't want to hear God say to any of you, Depart! I never knew you. I don't want to stand there and see you cast into the lake of fire. But I warn you, if you do not love Christ, if you are not saved by His grace and His mercy, I will stand there with Christ and I will see that happen and I will give Him glory. This is the Gospel. The good news. You don't have to hear that. You don't have to experience that. You could spend eternity with God in glory. If He convicts you of your sin, flee to Him. Come to Him. Cry out to Him for mercy and He will not turn you away. Rather, He will turn His wrath away from you. Come to Him. And oh, Christian, do you see the beauty of our Savior in the midst of the wrath of God? Do you see how much He has done for you? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray.